Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long. For just $25. $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert to buy now. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up? This your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. From UFOs to psychic powers and government conspiracies, history is riddled with unexplained events. You can turn back now or learn the stuff they don't want you to know. A production of iHeartRadio. Hello, welcome back to the show. My name is Matt. My name is Noel. They call me Ben. We are joined, as always, with our super producer, Paul, Mission Control Deck, and most importantly, you are you, you are here, and that makes this the stuff they don't want you to know. We're going on a journey today, fellow conspiracy realists. We are traveling to the far north. We're headed to Alaska, and we are looking for a town. It's a place you could easily miss unless you knew exactly where you were going and you knew exactly what you were looking for. This is a story of disaster. It's a story of death. And some would have you believe it is a story of monsters. Today's question, what happened to Portlock, Alaska? Before we begin, uh, Matt, Noel, had, had you guys heard of this town before? Before we started researching this? I had not. When I first came upon the stuff and, you know, shared it around with everybody, I had never heard of it. I'd never even heard of the peninsula that we're going to be talking about, this this whole area. Um, I, I know nothing. I just know it's Frontier. It's Alaska. And I remember tiny bits of some of the history... Uh, from... Do you remember that Discovery show that came out a long time ago, Ben? It was like it was the first fiction show that Discovery was making, and it was about Alaska. Didn't our uh, CEO Connell Byrne have something to do with that back in his Discovery days? I think so. I, feel like I he just did. remember. I remember looking up quite a bit of Alaska around that time, and just learning about how you know you think the American West as it was you know changing, and as Westerners were moving out to the West, like how rough that was, but then realizing just how tough it was to exist in Alaska in, you know, the er in those earlier times, um, 1700s, 1800s, uh, 
even the early 1900s. What, what, what was the impetus to settle out there, Ben? Like, I mean, it seemed like so inhospitable. Was there, was it about establishing trade or were there resources to exploit or a combination? Yeah, both. And then later uh, it became an important and remains an important uh, geopolitical barrier uh, during the days of the Cold War. Alaska is very, very close to Russia. Right. And so it, it, it behooves the U.S., at least in their calculations, to have something between uh, their continent and uh, Russia. This this place is inhospitable. It is still dangerous. I will probably allude to this a couple times in today's episode. But a few years back, Paul, Mission Control and I traveled to Alaska. Uh, and I believe it was the first time for both of us. This was in the production of a show called Missing in Alaska, uh, which also centers around a mystery in the far north. And uh, yeah, it's, it, it's very much on the edge of the wild in a way that many residents of the U.S. would be unfamiliar with and would haps, uh, would perhaps uh, find dangerous. But Ben, we, sorry, yeah, where, where, yeah. where did you guys travel to when you made that? Sure. Yeah, we were in Anchorage, Alaska. That's where that's the one of the easiest places to fly in. And uh, we landed there. Uh, we were there for about two weeks and we were gathering gathering footage, gathering tape, gathering interviews. And Paul traveled to, I don't want to say too much without spoiling this story, but Paul and our host uh, traveled to a incredibly remote location in Alaska on the open ocean and uh, to an island searching for a plane crash. Those are the teasers. The show is available for free on your podcast platform of choice. Smash that like and subscribe button or whatever people say <laughs> nowadays. I guess my, my point is you you guys have personal experience just being in Alaska, though it is a, a massive place, and specifically uh, on an island. So like experiencing the water, like r the shores and the water and how frigid and how dangerous that can be. Yeah, so it may surprise people to know that even in the modern day, uh, life in many parts of Alaska is at the mercy of nature and the passage of the seasons. So there are times where uh, the ocean may simply be uh, non-navigable in certain parts, right? Uh, and there are, for instance, when we were out uh, working on this, we were racing against time because we had seasoned experts and veterans, pilots, captains uh, who were saying, look, I've been doing this for decades. And if X, Y, and Z don't come together before, you know, this season hits, then you're going to have to wait another year. Uh, and that's just, that's just the reality of living with nature in a way that uh, many people don't nowadays because the majority of human beings live in urban areas. Uh, but this, this sets the stage. Just so you know, we're going to a very brutal place. Here are the facts. Nowadays, Portlock or what Portlock used to be, the site where Portlock was located, is abandoned. This was once a, a pretty bustling hive of activity at the very edge of the frontier. It is located, as you said, Matt, on the, um, the very southern edge of something called the Kenai Peninsula. That's right. And the closest town is a little bitty place about 16 miles to the north called Seldovia, um, which has a distinctly Nordic quality to the to the name. Um, and just to give you an idea of exactly how uh, remote this place is, Seldovia uh, only has around 300 residents. There are no roads leading in or out, and it can only be reached by a, uh, a small plane or boat. Because there's obviously yeah. no airport, so it would have to be one of those like planes that land on the water, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, and the same really goes for Port Chatham or Port Lock, where, what we're talking about here. And if you look at it on a map, you guys, it's, it, it's at the edge of nowhere. There's ocean. There are a few islands right outside of where it is, like some tiny little islands, and there's, you know, some state parks around it, and Port Graham, and then, like you said, Seldovia, and that's like, that's it. It's, uh, it's, in, it's incredible to imagine that people showed up there and started work to create 
any kind of living quarters or even a business. Yeah, and the story already gets a little bit confusing because this place was known as Portlock, and a lot of people outside of Alaska and outside of this region will refer to it as Portlock. But people who live in the area often use the phrase, often use the name Port Chatham interchangeably. That's because Portlock is located in Port Chatham Bay, but there's another nearby community called Port Chatham. Uh, additionally, there are a ton of places named Port Something or Other in Alaska. Why? This sounds a little weird at first. Here's why. It is important to remember modern exploration of the area, by which we mean after Native people have been living there for thousands of years, uh, modern exploration of the area depended heavily on maritime transportation of resources and people. There were no planes, there wasn't any air travel, and the brutal realities of overland crossing, even now, with modern roads and, and the um, internal combustion engine, even, even now it's still difficult. But back then, you would be naturally limited to how much you could take by like traveling by foot or traveling by sled, what have you. And, you know, also you had to have honest conversations with your fellow travelers like, how much are we willing to risk for this? You know, is, is it worth it just to wait a year? For a boat, uh, instead of you know just trying to get out there and hope we make it back, this is uh, is a crazy time. It's something that a lot of people might find hard to understand, but it was reality for many, many people for for decades and decades and decades. And it's uh, the town itself is named after a guy named Nathaniel Portlock. He's a sea captain, maritime fur trader. He was active in the area in the late 1700, specifically 1786. They took the, that's like the claim to fame, if you want to call it that. And this originally started out as purely a business town. It was a salmon cannery. Mm -hmm. And it later led to some other business operations, some kind of more um, industrial manufacturing. There was a chromite mining operation, uh, and they named the site Chrome. Uh, which I'm assuming, which is also what the Google browser is named after. Um, probably not. But this led to it really being a place of note enough that a post office was established in Portlock in 1921. But it would still be some time, 20 plus years, in fact, well, a little less than 20 years before uh, it appeared on the U.S. Census, when it was still listed as an unincorporated village with a population of 31, which, as we know, is... Not quite accurate. Um, but most of the town's history uh, consisted of a population that was largely made up of Russian um, expats and Aleuts, which would be the indigenous kind of tribal folk of that area, of that region. And there's a really interesting history in this entire area of these Russian Aleut schools. Uh, that's It's not necessarily stuff they don't want you to know, at least to my mind right now, but Fascinating history. Recommend you look into that if you have some time for yourself. Yeah, I believe there was a territorial school in the area at the time. And in that population makes sense because uh, the, the Aleut were already there, as were the other indigenous people. And again, had been there for a very, very, very long time. And then Russian travelers, Russian explorers, were the closest other people who could get there. So it makes sense that they would show up first. If we were all to travel there now, you listening today and and uh, the stuff they don't want you to know, gang, we would see little more than ruins. There's an old mining tunnel and some rusted cannery equipment, the sad skeletal remains of houses. It's all being slowly eaten away by nature. But there's a legend about this town, and it's a place some locals don't like to visit. You see, around 1949... People started leaving in droves, en masse. By 1950, that post office Noel mentioned had closed. And this effectively brought an end to Portlock, Alaska. So, what happened? Here's where it gets crazy. Oh, we're already here. Yeah, well, we've got, there's a lot of stuff going <laughs> oh, on. Oh, no. So, for many people in the area, Portlock's mysterious depopulation is not just a sad story of gentrification or failing business. It's the story of a monster. 
And what we'd like to do with you now, folks, is share the story as it's generally presented. So gather around with us in your mental campfire. Get a little closer to the flame, not just for the heat, but for the light, because there's darkness all around us. A few years after the establishment of this salmon cannery, people began disappearing. And you can read about this story if you want to see the full thing in places like Alaska Magazine and in Today's Alaska, a couple other places. So if you want to find your own sources, go ahead and head out there and you'll read very much the same stories that we're about to tell you here. And then uh, later on, we'll also tell you the primary source that they're all Exactly. But here, let's tell the story. As you said, Ben, there are many, there are several people that met untimely deaths out in Portlock, at least according to the stories or disappearances or disappearances, sometimes mangled bodies. Who knows? Uh, But there's a person named Andrew Kamluck who is said to have uh, gone out logging in 1931 and he was discovered dead from a blow to his head and there was some logging equipment found near him that may or may not have been part of his death sure i mean there's plenty of you know accidents that can befall you in uh, situations like that where you're working with heavy machinery or heavy equipment um or even just you know having to climb and maybe take a fall so there's certainly uh, other explanations but then we get into tom larson Tom Larson uh, went out to also chop wood, maybe less of an industrial thing, more of just like, you know, splitting logs. Um, And he claims to have seen something, quote, large and hairy um, on the beach. So he went back to his house and he got his rifle uh, and he found this this creature to still be kind of lurking around the area when he got back. And they got into a bit of a staring competition. uh, And Larson did not uh, did not shoot at the time. Um, and so, and according to some of those stories, they all posit he doesn't know why he didn't pull the trigger. Right. Because a lot of that is uh, copy pasted, to be mm-hmm. candid. And the uh, one thing that maybe the more skeptical in the crowd would note already at this point is the following. And I, I'm fine to say it. I know it's it's cold, but it's true. People are very good at dying. It's the one thing every person successfully does at some point. So uh, we have to we have to endeavor to stick to what what we know. There's a lot of speculation surrounding Kamluk, and there are a lot of speculation surrounding these other incidents, like hunters tracking a moose who found that something else appeared to be tracking the same creature, something that left 18-inch human-like or primate-like footprints. Side note, uh, if you have been tracking stuff through snowy weather, you know that uh, depending on the climate at the time and how much time has passed, uh, those footprints can erode and look larger than they originally were. And either way, these hunters came across a flattened spot in the brush, and that's where they believe this large animal, this, wait for it, big-footed animal, uh, didn't just kill a moose, but was uh, large enough and powerful enough to pick the carcass up and carry it away. If you have ever seen a moose, that is terrifying it is and i mean there you know there this is the kind of thing that is the stuff of legend so you're going to get different accounts of this and people adding their own details but i've certainly heard versions of the story where it looked like some sort of you know melee had taken place between these animals or or, or whatever the other thing was uh, and that there was there were signs of blood even in in the snow and and on the uh, on the brush yes and then there's one little other thing that gets added sometimes that they followed the footprints until they vanished. They began to vanish into the fog as they went up a mountain. And that's why, according to legend, locals will still tell you to avoid the area on a foggy day. Uh, there, there's also stories of people like a gold miner from nearby Port Graham. It's a different port. It's not Port Chatham. It's Port Graham, uh, who one day went off to the mines or went off to look for gold and never returned. You also hear, again, numerous reports of mutilated bodies being found as cannery employees disappeared into the hills and the wilderness, only to wash up later in nearby streams. In many of these cases, 
as you can probably already uh, ascertain, right? The events have been embellished online or by fringe researchers who often are putting a good story over solid facts. Sometimes they will do what I... We sometimes call the ancient aliens thing. And this is where they'll relay the stuff they've read from whatever source they found. And almost all of it ultimately comes from, as we'll see, a, a, a really small collection of sources. And then they'll pose their own embellishments, not as statements, but in a little bit more weaselly way, as questions. It's like, so if you see an episode of Ancient Aliens, and they'll say something like, the stonework and the masonry of Machu Picchu remains unexplainable by modern standards. What if they had help? What if there was some other civilization at play? Where did they come from? Could it be related to the stories of Atlantis or other ancient, incredibly advanced civilizations? Could it be aliens? Cut to commercial. Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long. For just $25. $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house. And I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. Terminix can't help you solve the world's biggest mysteries or take on alien life. At least not the ones you're thinking of. But they can help take care of pesky invaders in your home. Like the ants in your kitchen, the roaches under your sink, and the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. No matter what type of pest it is, they can Terminix it fast with personalized pest care that puts you in control. Their expertly trained technicians may not know true crime, but they know their local pest pressures. And with customized plans tailored to your specific situation, you get everything you need to not just get pests out, but keep them out for good. Between their speedy service, caring technicians, and over 95 years of experience, it's no mystery why they're trusted by homes and businesses everywhere. So if you have a pest problem, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com to book online today. And we're back. We really did it. We did the we did the move. Oh, well, <laughs> the commercial after. That was so fresh and so clean, Ben. 
Already, right, for, for those of us who are fascinated by cryptids or by the concept of cryptids, this feels like it has all the ingredients of a lurid, perfect monster story. And that's why if you, like us, started reading about Portlock on various internet forums today or in books about Sasquatch or Bigfoot, you'll see a lot of people claim, hey, something like Bigfoot was active in this area, was responsible for these attacks. But it's tough because, you know, when you go back to primary sources, aside from the one witness who survived, Larson, it doesn't seem like a lot of other people made it to the other side of these encounters. And that would seem oddly aggressive for Sasquatch, which is, you know, basically the world's reigning hide-and-seek champion, if it exists. I mean, it's famously reclusive, like a lot of other large fauna. You know, bears are not, bears don't wake up excited to come see you. They don't know why you're around. And it's irritating and confusing and frightening to them. And we can assume the same could be said of a lot of other large animals, um, except for, you know, some of the big cats and hippos uh, and crocodiles. Those creatures will actively hunt you. I just had an image just being hunted by the alligators specifically. Okay, Whew. push that out of my mind. Or sorry, Nile crocodiles will actively stalk people. Okay, I was going to say. They don't care. <laughs> they do not care. Uh, but but it's, I mean, it's interesting because I, I forgot to mention this. Like, I thought I had never heard of Portlock, but I believe I have heard a fictionalized version of it. Fictionalized in that it doesn't it doesn't purport to be true. It's a horror story called The Men from Porlock, which is by an uh, excellent writer named Laird Barron. If you enjoy horror, uh, then do check out his short stories and, you know, have a source of light nearby if you're easily spooked. Uh, do we know I, yeah. do we know roughly when that was published or like uh, the era? Huh. You know, I'd have to I'd have to go back and check, Matt. Um, OK. Yeah, it couldn't have been too long ago. I believe it was in maybe this uh, anthology that comes out every year called Best Horror of the Year. That might be it, um, edited by someone named Ellen Datlow. But so we're pretty, pretty, we're pretty confident it came out after, right? Oh, yes, yes, very much so. Laird Barron is alive. Uh, he was not writing this in 1949 or okay. anything like that. So, which will make sense when you see how the legend builds. So, you'll see books with titles like Abandoned, The History and Horror of Port Chatham, Alaska, and they lean into this idea that a monster attacked the town uh, and ultimately drove everyone out, but they don't dig into a lot of the context or details there. And, you know, that's not a ding on the book. That's that's the choice these these authors made. And I believe in the case of, in the case of Abandoned, there's also a video Right. There's a video piece of people hunting or attempting to find uh, something like Bigfoot in the area. Oh, there's a whole special you can find titled In Search of the Port Chatham Hairy Man. That's the one. Yeah. Is that, is yeah. that with Leonard Nimoy? Uh, nope. It's not In Search of. Okay. Colon. Okay. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's just called that. <laughs> uh, I misunderstood. I was going to be like, he's not that hairy. <laughs> no, no. This one... Uh, it was directed by Josiah Martin and written by Larry Baxter. And it features, what's his name? Stephen T. Major, person you may may or may not recognize. I may not. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes, Larry Beans Baxter. That's the, people call him Beans. That's true. I was, yes, I was reading about him, but... But like, here's the, here's the question, and we'll get into monsters in just a second. But for now, it's important to remember that a lot of people immediately shut down when they hear this sort of explanation. For many people, many people listening to the show today, the concept of a violent human-like creature, a Bigfoot, fighting back against mankind's encroachment, or would it be gentrification at that point? I don't know. Unclear. I guess it depends on how close those are to human. It's a non-starter, right? People are saying these things don't exist, therefore they could not be a reasonable explanation. But either way, wherever you find yourself on the skepticism scale, the fact of the matter is that Portlock, Alaska is abandoned. 
And for one reason or another, the town shut down completely, which means that something had to happen. And if you dig into the stories about the town's demise, you see that you can trace the sources. Many of the lurid tales of the disappearances and the purported deaths come from a single author, primarily. An article written by Naomi Clauda in 2009 for the Homer Tribune. And Brian Dunning over at Skeptoid, which, of course, you can tell by the title, is a source with an angle. Dunning points out that Clauda's work itself hinges on two sources. And one of those is an article that she also wrote way back in 1973 for a different outfit, the Anchorage Daily News. So she's taking some of that information from the 70s and carrying it on to this 2009 article, uh, which you can read in full online. And I believe you can find the text of the full 1973 article uh, in... In the archive at an Alaskan library, I can't remember which one. I, and I'll, I'll just tell you the easiest way to find the article that was later written based off that 1973 one. I had to go to the Wayback Machine on archive.org, and you, I searched for Homer Tribune and her name, Naomi Clauda, and you can find it. The article is titled Port Chatham Left to Spirits, and that's spelled C-H-A-T-H-A-M. Yep, hole in one. Uh, So the second source is a little more interesting, I think, because it's Mm -hmm. closer to the actual events. A couple of people who grew up in Portlock survived, and they moved with their families to Port Graham, and they were living in Port Graham at the time that they were interviewed by Clauda, and they were interviewed through a translator. These interviewees are the inspiration for Clauda's speculation on the cryptid angle. It's also fair to assume that while they might be the only people interviewed, they were sharing a belief that was not uncommon for folks at the time and possibly, as has been reported, in the modern day. Let's focus on one of the interviewees, Melania Helen Kell. Uh, She talked about those now typical tales of disappearance and death. This was regional folklore by this point, and it's something that Clauda was well aware of, but Kel was able to do something pretty significant. She added specific details. She was the person who would say, oh, you know, that logger, his name was, for instance, Andrew Kamlick or something like that. And when she was talking about this stuff, she and some other people are the ones who introduced the idea of supernatural involvement, of a local supernatural entity, something called the Nantinuk, N-A-N-T-I-I-N-A-Q. It's a tricky Nantinuk, one. It's a mouthful. To make it feel a little more like a spelling bee. Exactly. Uh, and, then, you know, this is something that would have been from the lore of, of, of this uh, indigenous people. I mean, so it's interesting to have that detail. And not only is this a cryptid type Bigfoot creature that, you know, has uh, corporeal personification, I guess, in this, you know, um, potentially uh, violent um, animal, for, for lack of a better term. It's meant to also be sort of a spiritual deity, like a, uh, a, a demon of some sort, like some kind of malevolent force. Um, and they believed, according to Kel, uh, that this was some kind of curse that was escalating and it was just going to keep getting worse and worse and worse. And these patterns they were seeing were just going to continue until something was done about it or until they just, you know, said, hey, we're we're out of here. Yeah. So she said, Kel says that this was this creature was the reason her parents said they had to leave town. They said, look, the, there's an escalating pattern of attacks. Honey, that's why we're leaving. But we're not going far. We're just going over to the next port town. And it really isn't that far from from where they were living. So it's weird to think that, you know, we're we're under attack here in this very specific place. But if we just travel a little bit over the land or around, you know, from this port just around to this other port, we'll be fine. Um it's weird to imagine that. So in my mind, when I think about it, I think of a territorial animal that, that you know, lives in a very specific place. It's not like there are a bunch of these Nantinucks, you know, living all around the area the way, you know, I guess, I don't know why I'm thinking squirrel populations, but like 
wolves or, or anything you may find out there in the wilderness of Alaska. Uh, it's more of a, like a family or a single thing that lives in one spot. Right. Yeah, it's an important point because it's supposed to, if we're talking about something that's a supernatural entity, then it is completely possible for it to be very long lived or perhaps immortal, right? And it is possible for it to be a single thing. So that's why you don't see a lot of questions about what would the active range of this creature be? What would its scat look like? Where would it nest? How would it reproduce? Anyhow, this sounds like big news. Everybody in town left because there's a monster that is killing people and mutilating them. If these attacks were happening multiple times over a period of years, and they were indeed escalating, culminating in this exodus from 1949 to 1950 or so, uh, multiple papers of the day would have probably mentioned it, right? Probably. That would have been a way to sell papers. One would think. I mean, if it bleeds, it leads. And there was blood all over the snow of uh, of Portlock, right? Um, I don't know if we mentioned this, but uh, the, these injuries, I mean, at least for, according to many of these primary sources, which can get diluted uh, in the retelling, you know, of, of this tale, uh, these injuries weren't typical injuries that you'd see, you know, done by like a bear attack or a wolverine attack or something. These were much more grisly and like, you know, like essentially being almost mutilated and torn limb from limb in some kind of borderline ritualistic way. At least that's what that's what people in the modern day are saying, right? If you the thing is, to the point about the idea that multiple papers would be highly incentivized to write about this, not even not even just for money. Let's not be entirely cynical about this. Papers were a way to warn people and help yeah. them. So there would be an ethical journalistic responsibility, arguably, to spread word of this. But the thing is, they don't. The Library of Congress has hundreds of thousands of archived records from newspapers in Alaska dating all the way back to the late 1700s, to the time of Nathaniel Portlock himself. And some of these stories do actually mention this tiny town of Portlock. And when they mention this tiny town of Portlock, they talk about the business there, which is why the town existed. They talk about stuff like fishing and the cannery and maybe a little bit about mining chromite. They do not mention anything about a rash of unexplained deaths, disappearances, and mutilations. The ones it's because they don't want to they don't want to scare people away from the cannery, right. dude. The salmon's still there. They need workers. I mean, that's not <laughs> right. that's not far off from what could possibly be the case. I mean, they depended on this for their very existence and sustenance. And they had this industry that if no one will work, the industry fizzles. And it already was a very, very small you know, industry to begin with. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's a good point. And a counterpoint to that would be that the more powerful newspapers of the time would not have been affected by that town getting bad press. They would have benefited from it. So, but, but either way, the fact is it didn't get reported. Was it a cover-up? Uh, was it because in their mind there was nothing to report? We'll leave the, we'll leave the ultimate answer to you folks as always. But what we did find is that there was a story about crime. There's one hilarious story about crime and it's about the postmaster. Because remember, we said the post office started in 1921, which really put a stamp of legitimacy on the town. The guy at the time, the postmaster, George Hank, was arrested by G-Men, 1924, got caught with a gallon of moonshine. No Sasquatch was believed to be involved. Hmm. Yeah, but maybe George and some other folks were dealing in some serious moonshine production out there somewhere, and... It was organized, and wait, you could even call them organized criminals. Wait, wait a second. No, I'm just joking. This is That's my speculation and, like, coming up with ideas because I have this one fact. Squatch just an example. <laughs> uh, so, uh, like, as, and disappearances did get reported. There was one reported in 1920, and then later, the, uh, before then, there was a report of a boat being found in 1917. And the boat that washed ashore in Portlock was the same kind of boat that these two hunters 
had set off on uh, from Seward, Alaska, before they disappeared. You know, it's kind of like saying Paul and Noel leave on a road trip to the Southwest, and they were leaving in a Ford Mustang, and then later in Texas, someone found a Ford Mustang. And and you guys disappeared. Yeah, yeah. Checks out. So that sounds like, like something we would do. So it doesn't explain. You know what I mean? It doesn't directly link anybody. So this is so that's the reporting you can find from the day that seems to be largely like the the fact based documentation of that time. That doesn't mean these things didn't happen, but it does definitely mean the people that were supposed to be reporting on these for some reason did not. Yeah, no, I agree. It is weird that there's nothing written there. And we've like we can't stress that enough. It is weird. And if there was something really going on, that is weird. I want to talk specifically about this creature, this Nantanuk, whatever, or Nantanuk, whatever that thing is, because some of the attacks, some of the lore that's been generated around this thing doesn't feel so much like a Bigfoot to me. It feels more like stuff I've read about a different legendary creature, a Wendigo. And I, and I know there's some similarities here. But Wendigo is a very different creature. I just wonder if there, if we found anything that shows Bigfoot maybe wasn't the original culprit or the original legendary creature that existed. Yes. Yeah, that's a great question. So let's go back to the monsters. What exactly is a Nantanuk? It is originally not a Bigfoot. It comes from a dialect that is extant on the Kenai Peninsula and the the languages here are rich and diverse. There are a ton of different languages. This word itself, Nantinuk, seems to be a loan word from another language. So the original word would be something like Nantina, which means literally those who steal people. Oh. And there's not a connection to cannibalism, right, the way there is often with the Wendigo. This thing was more like a boogeyman, more um, like a thing you would tell your kids about to make sure they didn't go outside. Like a, like a Babadook kind of situation. Um, uh, well, it, re- it reminds me of maybe tales of, of witches in, you know, the frontiers of the United States as it's being settled uh, in the mainland where – the, the, the tales of witches were that they will steal you away, basically, if you're a child. Um, at least some of those some of those tales were that. Yeah. And, and a lot of that's I mean, that's an oral tradition of getting kids to behave. Right? <laughs> well, well, yeah. And just be aware of of all the things that can harm you if you're a small child, especially predators and real, real, real animals. Yeah, whether you're talking about like El Coco or the Sackman or the Aswang or whatever, uh, the the various features of these creatures or entities may differ, but ultimately the the gist is there's something bad out there in the dark. Stay inside and don't wander away, even if it's daytime. If I can't keep an eye on you, you're doing something bad, kid, and there will be consequences. Yeah, and... I have to chop all that wood so we don't freeze later this year. So yes. I can't just look at you the whole time. So, yeah, this this thing did not, the description of it did not originally fit what we understand to be the description of Bigfoot. But over the decades since this incident, various authors have conflated the two concepts. So now people will understandably but incorrectly assume Nontinuk is another word for Sasquatch, which it is not. And the question of whether these authors made this conflation as an honest error or whether they did it as a purposeful embellishment is a little tougher to determine. You'd have to go to each person and figure it well, out. And I know this. I know that Sasquatch, you know, myths often associate um, them having some sort of interdimensional powers, uh, where they can, you know, move very quickly or do various things that you might ascribe to a supernatural being or, or deity. And to me, the Nantanak just takes that a step further. Like it's almost like a spiritual being first, and then 
like uh, embodiment of this creature second, which is I, I, I see where you're going with the Wendigo uh, thing, Matt, because that's sort of very similar to that, where it's a malevolent spirit that is out to cause havoc and, uh, you know, wreck the lives of those in its wake, you know? Yeah. And so we see this transformation and this is common in folklore, right? Myths commingle and they speak with one another. So like the, the issue though is Kel and other locals at the times of interviews did seem adamant, certain that at least in their memory, this monster, this entity, was the reason the grown-ups of the time gave for leaving Portlock, Alaska. And as any parents know, sometimes the stories you tell your children aren't the hard facts of a given situation, right? You kind of explain it through what feels like the most efficient, comfortable frame of reference for that young mind. But there are some other details uh, I found regarding the story of Kell's interview. So I mentioned earlier that there was a translator for this interview. I uh, believe that translator's name is Sally Ash. And Sally was able to speak multiple languages. So she was, and she was a cousin of Kell's. She said that uh, she said that according to the true belief system of the people, the Nantinuk is not like a Sasquatch. It's more of a, as we've described, a supernatural being. And the idea was that they were reclusive. They didn't really want to hang out with people. They had been sighted, but they were not trying to run up on you, essentially. And then for this, for this interview, for the Homer Tribune, the one that you know, blew up the story, it seemed that Sally Ash wants to clear the air about this controversy. And there's a great article about this in the Anchorage Press. She said that she, she said that this story was kind of manufactured or at the very least purposely embellished by Kell because Kel was getting so tired of people always asking her whether the story was true. So she made, she spun a tale around a campfire. And Sally says that my sisters, my cousins and I all were there while this was happening and we didn't want her to get mad at us. So we didn't want to be disrespectful to her, but Later, we would all have a laugh about this. So even this interview gets called into question later. Still, given that we know something definitely happened, and given that the stories seem, at least some of the stories, hopelessly exaggerated, unprovable, or muddled together, already becoming a piece of folklore, it's fair to say there's a missing piece of the puzzle here. What could it be at this point? Unless we all go camping in Portlock, we'll have to make our best guess. Uh, but, for, but for now, let's let's get our sleeping bags just in our rooms here and take a quick nap while we listen to these ads. Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long. For just $25. $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer? Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. 
So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house. And I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. Terminix can't help you solve the world's biggest mysteries or take on alien life. At least not the ones you're thinking of. But they can help take care of pesky invaders in your home. Like the ants in your kitchen, the roaches under your sink, and the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. No matter what type of pest it is, they can Terminix it fast with personalized pest care that puts you in control. Their expertly trained technicians may not know true crime, but they know their local pest pressures. And with customized plans tailored to your specific situation, you get everything you need to not just get pests out, but keep them out for good. Between their speedy service, caring technicians, and over 95 years of experience, it's no mystery why they're trusted by homes and businesses everywhere. So if you have a pest problem, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com to book online today. And we've returned. Let's search for some answers. Uh, okay, first, make no mistake. As we said at the top, Alaska was and is a dangerous place. Even now, even if you were in the capital you can look out on the horizon and you will have a palpable sense of being at the edge of the frontier. Even though Alaska is sparsely populated, I pulled some statistics that might be interesting. It has the highest rate of missing persons in the nation. California has the highest number of absolute missing persons, but Alaska has the highest rate of missing persons. For every 10,000 people, 41.8 will become missing persons. Oh boy, we need we need to we need to get our missing four one one guy over here again. <laughs> Serious, David Pilates. Yeah, this is a lot of missing people. Uh, okay, that's pretty disturbing. And we talked about it before. It's about the environment itself, right? It's about when you need something, you may not be able to get it, like a man made tool or a man made vehicle or something like that you may not be able to use a vehicle well, sure. to travel around and even in you know with the scant kind of infrastructure that they would have had in this sort of settlement type situation you know back before there was modern technology and stuff that was certainly could make living in Alaska at least a little more tolerable and less utterly terrifying and dangerous I mean, it's not out of the realm of possibility that this number of disappearances might have happened just organically from like going out into the wilds and taking a fall, you know, or um, because a lot of I believe a lot of these bodies were discovered in lagoon in a lagoon after washing down from various rivers that were like higher up in elevation. So, I mean, you know, again, this the mangling and all of that, we don't have firsthand accounts or, or, or images of this. So this is a lot of this is hearsay or possibly like a way to explain uh, why are so many people dying, but you really could just explain it by saying, yeah, it's because it's a harsh environment um, that is a very scary place to live. Uh, and there's many, many, many ways to die. Like you said, Ben, that's something that human beings are great at doing. From way back when the first humans were there to right now, the cold is one of the biggest things you got to worry about. And if you are not fully prepared and experienced to go through cold weather like that, especially if you're on foot, then it's over. And and you're just lost for a while until your body shows up. Mm -hmm. And when you are when you are in a place without infrastructure, support, uh, easy access to medical care, something as small as a broken ankle can spell the end of your story. You have to be very careful. So uh, just imagine how much more common this is back in the day. There's no GPS. There's no satellite communication. 
there's someone who's expecting you in a month or so. <laughs> so the, the stakes are high. And secondly, even now, towns across North America, across Canada, the U.S., Mexico, and towns across the world only exist when it makes sense for people to live there. So odds are, if you are listening in the U.S. right now, you are maybe maybe a day or two, maybe three days away uh, by car from an abandoned site near you. And many ghost towns become depopulated when they're no longer relevant on trade routes or when the industries they depended on were no longer relevant to the larger economy. This is why you see towns across the states that were abandoned when new railroad lines bypassed them, right? And now, now the horse and carriage trade that they depended on is all going by rail miles and miles north or miles and miles south or west or what have you. This is also why when you see a new stretch of interstate passing through a different town, people from the town that was no longer convenient by the interstate would tend to move. There would be brain drain. There would be population drain. And with this in mind, it's quite possible that the real murderer of Portlock, Alaska, may have been something as simple and as ruthless as progress. Oh, that dastardly progress. I can see this making sense, especially when you consider what really did happen in the 1940s, because we're talking about like immediately post-World War II, right, when the mass exodus occurred or when the last people left Portlock. And there's a little coincidence here and or just something that happened around the same time. Alaska Route 1, Zay Highway, was built during the 1940s and it legitimately fundamentally changed the transportation routes, the game, the, the whole game of transportation. Yeah, very, very much so, because there's, like we mentioned, there's so many ports in that area, port something or others, right? That's because overland travel, when you're talking about moving weight, it was dangerous, it was risky, and it was at times unreliable. So, now you have a way to most more safely transport goods in bulk over land. This means you don't need as many ships. This means also you don't need as many ports. And if you live in a town that, like Portlock, is not accessible from this new roadway from Alaska Route 1, uh, then things are starting to look economically grim because you've got... So if you look at the map of the peninsula, like Matt said at the top... What you can see is that Portlock is at the southern tip, kind of um, trending a little bit toward the western side. And if you look at uh, the way that Alaska Route 1 is built, it's on the other side of that peninsula. Yep. It's on the opposite side. And Port Graham is on the other side of that peninsula where there are stories of people moving directly from Portlock to Graham. Right. So in this in this way, people of Fortlock were luckier than some other towns because they could move and they didn't have to move too far away. Uh, when they moved, they were still close enough to maintain their lifestyles, their family connections, right, their communities, their friends. And they were able to relocate their businesses. And in fact, there's pretty solid argument to be made that their businesses would have thrived because of their access to this new trade route through Route 1. So it's possible then that people like Kiel's parents just told her a story they thought a kid would understand instead of walking her through the ins and outs of local economics. Unfortunately, it looks like the very same person who translated that story is telling us that it was little more than a tall tale or a prank. Unfortunately, we'll never know as the parents themselves were not interviewed. It's hard with this kind of stuff because so much of it is wrapped up in superstition uh, and wrapped up in this very, very harsh existence and this kind of, you know, combination of these indigenous tales and folks that are, you know, very superstitious. So you get these versions of the story that really lean into the, oh, but the mutilations were made by some some hellfire creature that couldn't possibly walk the earth, um, you know, that we know of and really muddies the waters. But... Um, 
there is the idea that Portlock simply because, again, of the nature of the size of it and the remoteness of it, that it just became less economically viable. Um, and that's something that certainly could be leaned into by the skeptical crowd. But it still is a place that locals tend to avoid. There are even, I mean, there are other uh, superstitious tales wrapped up in this. I wasn't able to find a direct primary source, but there are, you know, people who describe the area as haunted uh, and, and as of seeing apparitions and other kind of spooky stuff, uh, not just, you know, the, a, a limb from limb tearing monster. Um, so you can explain this stuff away all you want, but superstitious people remain superstitious, especially if they're part of generations of this kind of superstitious storytelling. Yeah. Yeah. People in Seldovia, Port Graham, another place called Nonwalek also uh, will, you'll find people there saying that the area is haunted. Uh, but with that, you know, you could say, you could say that about a lot of places, honestly, you, you can go to almost any region in the world and you'll see a lot of people who say this part of, I don't even know if I believe in ghosts, but that abandoned asylum, right? <laughs> not going to, not going to catch me there. A at million night. percent. Fully. Yeah. Fully haunted. Um, but, but you know, and they always say it's of the the people who died in these mysterious ways. They're the ones that actually haunt it. Um, not the spirit itself or the creature. Right. And in this and in that case, you have to ask how much of that has been generated purposely by mass media, you know. Um, but but the local aspects, the regional folklore is true. And there are people uh, possibly listening with us to the show today who have personally encountered these tales. Uh, we, we would love to hear from you. It's, it's also possible that people, uh, of course, most people don't want to seem credulous or silly or superstitious. So these beliefs or this discomfort uh, might be something they keep largely to themselves, to their close friends, to their confidants. You know, it's not something that you start a blog about. And at the same time, it's possible that various cryptozoologists and Bigfoot hunters exploring the area are, whether consciously or unconsciously, prioritizing beliefs that support their own hope. The hope that something exists out there on the edge of civilization, something both powerful and territorial, more than capable of pushing humanity back from the edges of the map. If there were something like this, Alaska is not a bad candidate as a place for it to call home. I mean, again, if you've seen a moose up close, well, yes, yeah, just a moose. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And you just go pick it up and take it with you back up a mountain. Uh, but. I'm not going to discount the possibility that perhaps something exists out there in the peaks, in the valleys, in the woods, maybe in a cave system. Something might be out there. I'm just, I'm not going to say it does. Oh, well, I'm going to say it likely doesn't exist, but I, but I'm one of those people, Ben, I think you might be too, that hopes something is out there. Yeah. Just don't like poke I mean, it, you know, if, if, it, if it walks <laughs> up on you because it could. Uh, I want to poke it. Let's go. No, I think it's a really bad idea, Matt. Bring it on, Bigfoot. You like, Let's you go. like those arms? You like those arms? <laughs> no. Yeah, okay. Because it will probably rip them from your bod. <laughs> I but just want to make yeah. friends and have tea. I, you got to have arms want, to have tea, Matt. I just want to see as much as possible. You know what I mean? before the last sun sets or the last star goes out or however you want to wax poetic about the very end of things. The brief candle so, and all that, right? Yeah, et cetera, et cetera. Burn bright, friends. Uh, so with this in mind, uh, we pass the torch to you. Let us know if you have ever been fortunate enough to explore Portlock, Alaska for yourself. Let us know what you saw. Let us know what other stories you have heard whether you think they have some sand, uh, and it doesn't have to be in Alaska. Every, every remote place has some sort of cryptid story, whether you're talking about the Mongolian death worm, whether you're talking about the abominable snowman or the Yeti. There are, there are a wealth of stories, some that are treated just like tall tales, some that are treated as, uh, as realistically as you would treat another wild animal and the threat it poses in the wild. 
We can't wait to hear from you. We try to make it easy to find us online. And uh, we'll also, the places we're about to tell you about online are also where you can find pictures if we ever make it to Port Lock, Alaska, and more importantly, make it back. That's right. You can find us on the usual internet places of note. We are Conspiracy Stuff on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. Conspiracy Stuff Show on Instagram. Yes, and we have a phone number. You can call it. It's one eight three three stdwytk you can leave a voicemail. Oh yeah, for three minutes, up to three minutes. And when you do call in, please give yourself a cool nickname, whatever you'd like to be called. Leave your message. And uh, if you got anything personal to say to us or the super producers that work with us, uh, say it right at the end. That's perfect. Just do it just like that. If three minutes is not enough time to say everything you want to say, we highly recommend you instead send us a good old-fashioned email. We are conspiracy at iheartradio.com Stuff They Don't Want You to Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long. For just $25. $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store.